Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Before we start the show this week, with Melbourne still in lockdown and much of England following the same way, we're going to do another Final Word live show online. This time, we're doing it with Australian leg spin genius Stuart McGill. We'll have the details of when and where pretty soon, but if you want to watch the show, the easiest thing to do is sign up to the patron page or keep an ear out on the show, on the feed or on the website. We'll have more information about that coming very soon. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out. This is the final word story time for your weekend leisure listening. I can even see a hammock from where I'm sitting right now. I'm not in a hammock. I probably should be in a hammock for a future edition of the show. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is in London and we are ready to go through Cricket's stories and its strange old history once again. We are indeed. Hello, Jeff. We've got 44 minutes until the preliminary final starts between Port Adelaide and Richmond at Adelaide Oval. So if we can get this done inside 44 minutes, we'll have done really well. I think the last few eps we've talked for about 50 minutes. So that's the bar. Let's see whether we can do it. 
The first five minutes of any final is shit anyway because they're always just sort of, you know, staging, trying to feel each other out and nobody's doing anything and it's a, a bunch of ball-ups anyway. But we won't talk about Australian rules football anymore on this show. We are going to talk to Will Anderson later in the show or, to be perfectly frank, we've already spoken to Will Anderson a couple of years back. Was it 2018 or, or 2019? I have no sense of time but Yeah, anymore. it's a fair while ago. It was one of the first steps that we did without a cricketer. And it worked. So we did a number of others. Uh, I think we mm. then spoke to Isha Guha, who, of course, was an international player herself. But we spoke to her more about sort of being a broadcaster and outside of the game and, and other interviews through 2020 that have been like that. But I think we started it off with Will. Yeah, maybe it was March 2018 from memory. Anyway, it's a, an entertaining chat. It'll come up after story time. Uh, I, I wanted to kick off the show today with a thank you to our correspondent, Andy Taylor. We've spent a fair bit of time over the last few weeks w- when we're working out how time works, uh, the, the concept of something being monthly, being once a month, what sort of calendar you're using for that, which has led us to talk about the Julian calendar quite a lot, which has led <laughs> us to talk about the Brendan Julian calendar calendar quite a lot which if you're going to have a calendar it might as well be the Brendan Julian calendar you know October he's doing a fireman pose November it's a sort of rural farmyard scene you know a pair of overalls with nothing much underneath but this suggestion came in from Andy Taylor which is that if you had a Brendan Julian calendar you could also have the Gregorian calendar could become the Greg or Ian calendar as in Greg or Ian Chapel. <laughs> so both of our major calendars now tie into cricket in a perfectly uh, cromulent way. Thank you Andy Taylor. Yeah I would have thought my instinct would have been to go with the Tatiana Grigorievarian calendar who of course Tatiana <laughs> Grigorieva uh, was the silver medalist in the pole vault the night that Kathy Freeman won the gold 20 years ago but happier for it to be a cricket link so uh, the Greg or Ian Chapelli. uh calendar it is yeah and look anything as far as the sydney 2000 olympics go tatiana on the pole vault and jumping jai on the long jump the two silver medals that were worth more than any gold australia's ever won oh yeah surely what a what a combo what a duo um but that on kathy's night as well we get into cricket history via a mechanism of the game of nerd pledge It is the game that we play with people on the Patreon page that we have for the show where they support us doing the podcast by sending us a number of dollars and cents that cryptically is linked to a cricket number and then we have to work out what that number is. The first of our new numbers on the show today comes in from Tim Gilkerson, the volunteer self-appointed graphic designer of The Final Word who is often sending us uh, all kinds of ads uh, for our show, uh, did a, a spec cover for my book, all kinds of other work that's that's amazingly done for a man primarily working in Microsoft Paint from the best that we can tell. Um, bless his work. Tim Gilkerson has sent through $3.23, and I would like to know from you, Adam Collins, what does the sequence 323 suggest to you in the context of cricket, sir? Yeah, I'm not a philistine when it comes to using computers, but I think I will continue to use MS Paint uh, until I'm 60 when it comes to trying to Photoshop and so on, so I respect Tim's work. I didn't have much success initially when looking at 323. I mean, it's Kiso Rabada's cap number for South Africa, which I'm sure will become a very important number as he goes on to take four, five, six hundred test wickets over the next ten years or so. And it's also, as it relates to story 
story time, what England were bowled out for in the fourth innings of the 1937 or 36-37 test match at the at the MCG, which we've returned to time and time again. So when Bradman makes 270 in the third innings and, and that crazy start with uh, England declaring eight down and Australia bowled out for peanuts uh, on the first morning and the rest day and all the rest. We've told that story a number of times, but that number 323 relates to the fourth innings, but I didn't think that was quite compelling enough. I think he went one better. I Look, I had a little further dig around here, and one thing that we've talked about a bit recently, I think it was last weekend's show, was how in 2015 in the World Cup, Ireland should have made the knockouts because they beat the West Indies handily, chased down 330-odd to beat the West Indies, and they should have gone through except the Windies, who had been absolute crap and were losing to everybody, miraculously and perhaps unsurprisingly beat Pakistan so the West Indies got that one win back that took them through to the knockouts instead of Ireland because Pakistan couldn't do the job for Ireland the green teams couldn't look after each other that loss though came about via Andre Russell now the West Indies were batting first they were on 259 and they had 17 deliveries to go when the wicket fell that brought Andre Russell to the crease he proceeded to hit 42 from 13 balls <laughs> including one that went for four leg buys off his pad so 42 from 12 balls that he actually scored off the bat uh, in the meantime there were five runs made from four balls at the other end so that took the Windies to 310 took the wind out of Pakistan. They were never near it in the chase. Andre Russell's strike rate for 42 from 13 deliveries was 323. You love strike rates. I never go near love strike them. Rates. Uh, economy rates and strike rates are, are your special spot, and I'm glad we've been able, able to start story time this week with one of those. It seems good to me. <laughs> uh, next on our new numbers list, Nikhil Venkatesh has sent through two, one... Three, two, thirteen. <laughs> ding, the ding, final ding, words ding, matching ding, number. Ding, ding. That's number wang. Two thirteen. However, this is not the two thirteen that we have looked at every possibility of by having looked at every possible variation of two one three in international cricket, because this relates to county cricket. Nikhil sent us a message to say that this this number was hideously obscure. The clue is that I am a Derbyshire fan. And I was reminded to do this by Derbyshire chasing 365 to win in the final innings on the day when the pledge was sent. Where does this leave you, Adam? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, Nikhil, for your contribution and fun clue. Well, I probably ignored the bit about the chase and went straight to 213 as it relates to Derbyshire and went back to the championship in 1980. That was the season where Peter Kirsten, who was one of the um, South African players in the championship at the time, made 213 for your mighty Derbyshire. He was a young man, obviously, at that point. We think of Peter Kirsten when he makes his international debut in 1991 when South Africa come out of the international wilderness and he gets that opportunity makes a test ton but that's kind of that but he did make 57 first class centuries along the way in a career which started all the way back in 1973 made in excess of 22,000 first class runs and I'm sure he's a player that we would talk a lot more about if not for the fact that South Africa were in exile uh, through the bulk of his career but he did on one day in 1980 make 213 for Derbyshire so it was an otherwise relatively boring draw so I'm not sure whether this will tick the box given uh, the reference point to a chase that uh, Derbyshire 
achieve this year. But that's what I thought was worth mentioning, given that it's usually Peter's brother, Gary, who we spend most time focusing on, but he was a fine player indeed. Nice, Gary. Uh, thank you, Nick Hill. Uh, Adam, I looked not at a chase that Derbysh uh, undertook, but at a chase that they defended. So in August 2006... Derbyshire were at the end of a streak in which they could not win a game at home. They hadn't won at home in more than two years. It had been over 50 months across 33 county championship matches in which they had not been able to win on their home ground. This game, they're playing Somerset, uh, and they make a pile. It's a very Australian-focused match because Michael Divenuto and Travis Burt make a lot of runs, and in the end, Derbyshire set Somerset, 579 to win, which is not going to happen, right? And then Somerset are four for 90. It's all going the way you'd expect. And then enter the Victorian all-rounder Cameron White. Cameron White makes 260 not out, (laughs) uh, batting through with everybody else in the team. He's left high and dry at the end when Somerset are out for 498. So 498 in the fourth innings. It's the highest ever score in a losing chase in first-class cricket in England. And with a bit more support, might have got them to that 579. But the key part of that chase, it was all built around a partnership with Wes Durston, who was a bit of a flash-in-the-pan sort of um, hard-hitting player, you describe him as, which meant he scored quickly and didn't value his wicket that much. But on this day, he made 70-odd with Cam White, and they put on 213 in partnership in that run chase, which had all the joy of something spectacular and weird, plus Derbyshire still won the game that didn't actually cost them the game and they got to break that streak. Of all the things that you've talked about with 213, Jeff, we did an entire episode dedicated to this number. I didn't think we'd be talking about the partnership between Wes Durston and Cameron White, but here we are, and we're, and we're better for it. Uh, so thank you, Nicol. Uh, we're in good shape today. I feel like we're, we're hitting the high notes nice and early, Jeff. We're up and running. Uh, next new number comes in from Guysy K, and that number is $2.50, round and on the button, 250, which in the past we've, we've spoken a lot about Justin Langer's Ashes 250 at the MCG, Adam, which we were both watching from the stands in 2003, was it? Yeah, uh, 2002, 2003 it was the Ashes Test match yeah. uh, when the entire Western stand was taken down and you could look from the Southern stand straight through at the, at the city. It was a nice touch uh, they had a viewing platform, I think, on, on the walkway as well. So a very enjoyable test match, which was uh, concluded on the fifth day, but set up by Langer's 250. There's Doug Walters' 250 as well. Chris Lynn made a 250 against Victoria, where he hit 10 sixes along the way, I should add, uh, back in 2014. Froggy Thompson uh, was the 250th man to play test cricket for Australia, a man who was mentioned by uh, William McInnes uh, in uh, our conversation with him a couple of months ago. But instead of all of that, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction, Jeff. Uh, we talk about sort of having light and shade on story time telling the, the, the positive stories and the negative ones well Morris Turnbull uh, the tragic tale of Morris Turnbull he was the 250th test cricketer for England and one of five men who played for England who died in the second world war we spent a lot of time recently on story time discussing Headley Verity the great spinner who died in 1943 in the case of Turnbull he was shot by a sniper in August 1944 he was involved in the Normandy landings in June 1944 and a couple of months later died in action he was a welshman he, he was uh, fighting for the welsh guards over there in france he played rugby for wales and cricket for england he's the only man to have combined those two representative sides which is kind mm. of amazing 
in its own right. He also played hockey for Wales. Uh, he played nine test matches between 1930 and 1936. So he played in New Zealand, in South Africa, and then at home against the West Indies and India before the war. He was a champion at Glamorgan. He captained the county between 1930 and 1939. He also captained Cambridge along the way. But yes, the 250th man to play for England was Maurice Turnbull. Uh, a very full life, died at the age of 38 and one of five men killed in action who played Test cricket for England during the Second World War. Morris Turnbull. Guys, OK, there is your number from Adam on Storytime. Thank you. Jesse G up next, who's been in the action a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, Jesse G keeps popping up, loves an edit of the number. And so the latest edit is $2.37. And given that Jesse's previous or, or one of Jesse's previous numbers involved the 2015 World Cup as well, which we mentioned before. It involved Kumar Sangakkara making four ODI hundreds on the trot to join up with Amy Satterthwaite as players to do that in one-day cricket. So we know we know Jesse's interested in that World Cup. We know Jesse's a relatively recent cricket convert and watches on from the United States of America. So I'm reckoning that 237 is also World Cup-related, which means it would be the day out of one Martin Guptill at the Cake Tin in Wellington. <laughs> Martin Guptill, who always looks like a depressed PE teacher when he's playing on the field, <laughs> had a day to bring him happiness at the Cake Tin. He put the West Indies on the roof 11 times that day, just kept going over the leg side, and uh, rattled up a double hundred in the tournament. I think Chris Gale made a double in that tournament yep. as well. So the, the runs were coming thick and fast. And... Uh, it was, it was one of those days where the West Indies were as bad as they should have been against Pakistan, uh, where they didn't let Ireland into the quarterfinals, and we'll never, never get over that. Yeah, I've seen Guptill explode firsthand when he made a century in a T20 international at another tiny ground in, in New Zealand uh, at Auckland. Uh, Eden Park uh, it would have been in early 2018 beautiful night packed Eden Park it feels weird to think of a, a packed crowd given uh, the way we, in which we consume international cricket at the moment which I mean given we've had another lockdown announced here in the UK yesterday over the last couple of days London now um, included in that it feels even further away from having crowds but I digress when Guptill is on one it is a sight to behold and uh, that was certainly the case in that quarter final so I'm with you there Jeff. I will also note that uh, if we go a lot further back from the 2015 World Cup, Alfred Shaw, a slow right-arm bowler who played for England in the first ever Test match in 1877, played in seven of the first eight Test matches, Alfred Shaw, and ended up with a Test bowling average of 23.7237. So you can look into that, Jesse, if you don't know about Alfred Shaw. Very nice. Thank you, Jesse G, for being a loyal supporter of ours. Uh, the next number on our list is a strange one, Jeff. It's from Matt Keane. And it's double zero. I'm going to get you to, first of all, explain it, Jeff. You've been corresponding with Matt, and then I'm going to get you to solve it. Well, first, I'd like to specify that Matt did not pledge zero dollars and zero cents. Um, he did actually put in a regular <laughs> Julio pledge and sent a message to say, I realise that I risk public ridicule for being a tight-assed git, but bear with me. I'd like to put in double zero as my number. The number double zero actually appears twice in this particular game not a test, a county game some years ago. And in order to give us a clue, he said, think about the art of captaincy. Well, sniffed onto this trail immediately. The Art of Captaincy is the book written by Mike Brearley, former England captain, who also captained Middlesex for a very long time. 
And in a game in the county championships of 1977, Middlesex were vying for the title. They were two points behind Kent late in the season. Uh, They were playing a three-day game because they played some other league on the Sundays back in that Mm. particular time. So they'd play Saturday, Monday, Tuesday. And they lost most of the first two days to rain, but it was still being counted as a multi-innings, three-day game in terms of how it had to be resolved. So they needed to win. They needed to get a win with basically one day to play. But the pitch had been uncovered for the previous couple of days while it had been raining, so it was green and it was wet, and Middlesex had the West Indies fast bowler Wayne Daniel and they had Mike Selvey in his prime as well. And so they smashed Kent the first time, bowled them out for 49 but then thought, we don't have enough time left in the match to go and bat, make something, set them a target and bowl them out again. And we want them to bat while the pitch is bad. So Middlesex came out to bat for one delivery. They sent uh, the later umpire Gunnar Gould and John Ambury, their spinner, out to open the batting. They faced one ball, which was a swing and a miss. And then they declared on zero for zero. Then they bowled out Kent again for 89 and then they chased 142 with a leg in the air, Brearley 66 not out, and got the win and ended up getting the title, sharing the title with Kent on even points. So it was the masterstroke in a career of many captaincy masterstrokes from Mike Brearley, uh, naught for naught, the declaration, and that is the double naught of Matt Keane. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Well worked out, Jeff. I wonder whether that was the catalyst for... Uh, allowing a side to forfeit in innings. I mean, you talk about uh, John Embry walking out there with Gould and, and declaring on none for none. I, I wonder, because now you wouldn't do that. I mean, when you declare in innings, which happens from time to time, in especially in, in, in first-class cricket when you're chasing points or, or whatever it is, uh, you wouldn't go through that uh, process of walking out to the middle, facing mm. a ball, then walking off again and losing two or three overs, whatever it is in the, in the competition you're playing in. But uh, it, it would seem as though that was the case then, that you had to at least start your innings. So I, I might chase that up in the week to see when that, when that playing condition changed. Yeah, that's something I came across when I was doing some reading about this was that at the time Brearley did want to forfeit and was told by the umpires that they had to face a delivery um, in order to be able to declare. And it was changed not immediately after that, but my understanding is that the the dodgy Hansi Cronier test when uh, Nasser Hussain and Cronier each forfeited in innings, that was allowed by the match referee, even though it wasn't specifically written into the match conditions or laws at the time that they could do that. It was allowed to happen. And then it was since changed, I think, after that test match uh, to mean that you can now forfeit in innings without walking out onto the pitch. Yeah, I mean, I've that, that is an interesting point. I might talk to Andrew Sampson about this during the week because it, it feels to me just sort of consuming first-class cricket for however long it is now, 25 years, that you see it pretty often. Uh, you see it, you know, at least a few times a season. So th- there must have been a change in the way it was interpreted along the line. I'll, I'll follow that up during the week. Next up, we have a very special little incidence on story time because you know that with Nerd Pledge, we don't mess with the list. You you are served in the order that you arrive. We never move it around for the sake of convenience or, or synchrony. We had a, a nice little instance last week where someone came in with a pledge that matched another pledge that we were doing that day and so they went from the back of the list to the front which had never happened before on the same day. And now we've got another thing that hasn't happened before, which is two numbers, one after the other, which just happened to be very closely related in our estimation. One is from Tyson Singleton, who sent us a flat, even 
$4, which we are interpreting as 400400 uh, which is, of course, the highest test match score owned by Brian Lara. The one beneath that in the list from Jason Grice, $2.77, which must be nothing but the 277 made to start what would be a brilliant career from Brian Charles Lara. The 400 and the 277 together at last. And this gives us an opportunity to reflect on BC Lara and why he was such a special player in the game, particularly through that sort of second half of the 90s. And we could talk about a number of his innings and the majesty of Lara, you know, the high backlift and the stroke player that he made an art form of. But the 277, I think sometimes this gets clumped in with all those other great innings when it's easy to forget he was playing just his fifth test match and the circumstances of the series and the match that he was playing in. So, you know, the Windies nearly lose in Brisbane. And remember, they haven't lost for, what is it, by that point, a decade longer, 13, 14 years since they'd lost a series. They certainly weren't planning on losing to Australia, who were yet to really hit their stride as they ramped up through the 90s. And, you know, they nearly lose in Brisbane. I think Richie Richardson saves their bacon in the fourth innings. They do lose at Melbourne, where Shane Warne goes nuts and takes seven for 52 on the final day to bowl the Windies out. They move to Sydney for the New Year's Test match, and Australia go on to make 503 in the first innings. So, I mean... When you consider that's the third test of the series, if they go on to win after making 503, mm. and you do more often than not in that situation, granted there was some rain around, but nonetheless a big first innings tally, that's it, series over. I mean, sure, the Windies could could draw it from there, but they couldn't lose from there, which was an important beachhead for Australian cricket at that point. But instead, Brian Lara intervenes. Not before the Windies lose two early wickets, I should add. They were 31 for two, Australia flying... Lara walks in, 23 years of age, I mentioned before, just his fifth test match, and goes on to make 277 from 372 balls. An innings which felt like it went for days and days and days, and it kind of did um, because of the rain that intervened halfway through. But, yeah, he, he really neutralised Warren after Warner dominated at Melbourne. They secure the draw, and, of course, they go on to win at Adelaide and Perth. Famously, they beat Australia 2-1, and that streak continues. But it all starts with Lara, who turned the tide at Sydney, and he, of course, went on to name his daughter Sydney um, as well after the city where he made that wonderful double century. Starts the process of him being this real star as well, and it's, it's 1994 when he breaks the... Garfield Sobers record for the highest test score and makes 375. Then he makes the the first class 501 uh, later that same year, wasn't it? In for for Warwickshire, and there's this moment where you, I, I remember this being the case. I remember watching cricket as a kid at that time, and whenever Lara was there, whenever Lara was coming out to bat, there was this buzz and this excitement because he did things that no one else could do you know he broke records that no one else could think of breaking and I remember it being the same era when everybody was excited and obsessed with Michael Jordan at the Chicago Bulls just running amok and and taking the game to a different level and it felt like cricket actually had a version of that you know in, in a game that wasn't necessarily used to it Lara was a worldwide star in a way that cricketers hadn't really been before, I don't think. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a good observation. Like the fact that you could see it as well. Uh, so much of Lara's career was 
watchable through television where had he been 10 years older we would have seen him play you know every few years or so when he would have came to australia i suppose being a west indian he would have been in australia most years through the world series cup but certainly in test cricket you just didn't see a lot of these overseas players but in lara's case i feel like we saw all of the high points maybe not every one of them but most of them uh, thanks to cable television and reports that were coming back from uh, series that were televised that otherwise wouldn't have necessarily been so yeah i think that's a big part of it the, the generation that he came through and then the aesthetics as well wasn't it so you had tendulka on the other side of the ledger who of course a beautiful player to watch but such a technician the short backswing by contrast the timing the playing down the ground and then there was Lara who was all arms and legs and uh, such a joy to watch and of course went on to do it for many years all all flourish and uh, sort of ridiculous flair with, with mm. no no sense of ever playing things cautiously it was all attack and so the 400 the 400's kind of almost the other end of his career and it's taking his world record back six months after Matthew Hayden took it off him so Hayden's 380 I think was made in October I reckon it was an early test against Zimbabwe in Perth and then by April the next year Lara had taken his record back (laughs) said no no thanks mate it's not Matthew Hayden at the top of the list and and got that 400 the the same ground where he made the 375 the Antigua recreation ground and you know there was criticism at the time that that it was a, a glory milestone and so on both the 375 and the 400 were made in draws but you know, they were made at a ground that didn't really do anything but produce draws. You know, most teams made big scores there, but that didn't mean players made 300s or 400s there. And it was in a series where the West Indies had been thrashed three times by England already. They'd been bowled out for 47 and then for 94 earlier in the series when Lara hadn't made runs. So when he did, it was a demonstration that, you know, you you don't need to be afraid of bowlers. This is what you can do to them instead. Yeah, that's exactly how I interpreted it. I mean, he's, I think his fourth hundred was the slowest of the four, if I recall, recall correctly, which did generate a certain amount of criticism. But yeah, England had been dominant in that series to that point. And it was, yeah, laying a marker, I think, to the next generation. He wasn't far away from retirement at that point. I think he may have put the cue in the rack in about... 2006 Jeff or thereabouts maybe 2005 I know he was in Australia in 2005 I don't think he went for much longer than that but yeah in signing off it was like one last hurrah and wanted to make sure that you know it was possible to bat for a couple of days and and show his uh, younger teammates that that was the way to do it so uh, yeah he sort of bookends his career with that 277 uh, that we mentioned a little bit before back in uh, early 1993 and then the 400 uh, in April 2004 so it was uh, very nice that those two numbers uh, we're off the reel uh, Tyson Singleton and Jason Grice thanks for being part of it that's the end of our new numbers for the show today we will look back at some ones that we may have got right or wrong in previous weeks if you want to send us a number it's very easy you go to patreon.com slash the final word and you can sign up there keep the show rolling and send us something to see if you can stump us I need to make a special mention of Rob O'Neill at this point. Now, Rob was a long-term quarry. There was a number from Rob that we just couldn't get and were hunting for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And uh, I started talking about it on the show in terms of the hit musical Les Miserables, because, of course, why not? In which (laughs) Rob O'Neill was Valjean and I was Inspector Javert on his (laughs) trail, on his tail, never giving up. 
and I, I refer to him on the show as 24601. So Rob has uh, very graciously turned around and sent us a nerd pledge of 24601, as in $246.01, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're very grateful for your generosity, Rob. And anybody else signing up, you don't have to send that much. Um, but Rob said he, he got more than enough uh, enjoyment out of it to, to warrant sending us a, a bonus for spending so much time on his number. That's amazing, Rob. Thanks so much uh, for being so much fun with us too on the DMs. It's been really enjoyable going back and forth with you as we got to the bottom of your number. We have some revisits, Jeff. The first of those is $4.64 from Jeremy Nash. We initially said Finch and Carter's, their partnership uh, in Bankstown in 2015. We then went and solved 464 uh, for Anthony Radford, which was Matthew Innes's figures against India in a tour game for Victoria back in 2004 but in the case of Jeremy uh, he said that it was bowling figures for his 464 and the last name was relevant so for my part I thought Nash. Malcolm Nash, of course, was the bowler, uh, unfortunately tasked with sending it down to Gary Sobers at the peak of his powers. Sobers uh, hit his six sixes off Nash at Swansea in, in 1968. Of course, you can learn more about um, that uh, on Calling the Shots. It's one of uh, a rare a game that was rare game of county cricket that was televised at the time. So uh, thankfully, we were able to watch that thanks to BBC Wales. Uh, we looked at Brendan Nash, who was the West Indies recruit from Queensland in 2003, the unlikely recruit to international national cricket. Dion Nash, who was a bit of a mainstay for New Zealand uh, in the 1990s, especially in white ball cricket. But that's kind of where I got to. So I, I pass over to you, Jeff, a little bit stumped. Well, I, I did spend a lot of time looking at Dion Nash's career numbers as well, trying to find a 464 in there somewhere. And it was not to be. But look, I, I let it stew. I let it simmer. I came back to it today. And here's where I ended up. 464 is what we're looking for, remember. And if it's bowling figures, it has to be a 4 for 64. Now, you mentioned Malcolm Nash and you mentioned Gary Sobers hitting him for six sixes. Malcolm Nash was mostly a seamer who changed later in his career to try a bit of spin a la Colin Miller. I think he was bowling left arm spin and it was around the time that Derek Underwood was having a lot of success in England and so... Malcolm Nash thought he'd give it a go and that's what he was bowling to Gary Sobers when he was tonked for the six sixes and he said that um, Sobers rather ended his experiment as a spinner but what gets left out of that story is that Malcolm Nash was bowling really nicely that day before Gary Sobers came along in, in the first innings of that game he'd picked up four out of the top five to fall he was taking wickets. He ended up with figures, being dragged from the attack after being smashed for six sixes, he ended up with figures of four for 100 in the innings, which means that before he was hit for six sixes, his figures for the innings were four for 64. <laughs> Jeff, uh, you're on top form today. That's brilliant. Of course, Malcolm Nash passed away uh, last year at the age of 74, but a long and distinguished career uh, for Glamorgan. A um, bit of a Welsh theme today, hasn't there, throughout the course of story time. And I'm glad, well, I hope, maybe, we've got to the bottom of Jeremy Nash's 464. Uh, the next revisit, Jeff, was $2.62 from Julian Russell. We went with Ian Bell's 262 uh, that he made at the start of his career back in 2004 for Warwickshire. Uh, Julian replied, while I'm a big fan of big game Belly's exquisite touch, my number refers to a competition clinching performance sometime before his knock, even if the game in question did not reach a conclusion. As a dual continentalist straddling the same two nations you are both currently based in, the fact 
fact that I'm now down the road from Adam means I don't get nearly as much spearmint milk as I did in my youth, which was a good clue in its own right. So um, spearmint milk uh, was what... Makes your bones strong. Well, first of all, I did note to, uh, in reply to Julian that uh, there is now violet crumble milk, Jeff, that you sent me a couple of weeks ago, uh, which has been released, and I want to get a carton of it. Well, not just a carton, a crate of it to North London. I've been looking. Apparently, it's in Victoria, though, and I'm no longer in Victoria. So, you know, you, you may be locked in in Victoria, but at least you've got violet crumble milk to get you through. When you get your hands on it, you can send me some. I'll split the difference with Julian Russell, and we can sit down and have ourselves a, a glass of violet crumble milk. But um, the fact that he noted spearmint milk got me thinking it must be West Australian, because spearmint milk, as we discussed at great length on the show, you can only be found in Perth. Well, Perth, 262. Sheffield Shield, the Sheffield Shield final, was drawn in 1986-87 thanks to Mike Valletta. Mike Valletta timed his run perfectly. So I, I know of this game because Victorian fans would remember that it was the only real chance they had to win the Shield in the 1980s, certainly the late 1980s. They make the final, they go to the Wacker in 86-87, and they, you know, they do well in the first dig. They make 404 against a fearsome uh, West Australian attack with Tony Dottomade making 81 and Simon O'Donnell making 80. But then WA shut it down. Of course, the draw's enough to win the title uh, when you're the home side in, in the Shield final, and they went on to make 654. Mike Valletta. 262, that's the number, 262 from 550 balls. It guaranteed that the Shield would go to Western Australia. The first of a hat-trick of wins uh, for the Sand Gropers. Uh, for Victoria, their weight uh, would continue until 1990-91. For Valletta, perfect timing. So he makes 100 yeah, again in that in that final. It parachutes him into the Australian team as a result. Uh, he makes his Australian debut in the, in the Canary Yellow, gets over to the World Cup and of course makes 48 in the semi-final against Pakistan in a narrow win and then he's crucial in the final, making 45 not out of 31 balls to get Australia to 2-5-3 for 5 and they go on to beat England by 7 runs for one of the most important players at the pointy stage of that World Cup. He doesn't really go on to have a, a massive international career after that, but he'll always have 1987, and it started with 262 at the Wacker in that Sheffield Shield final. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I have nothing more to add to that. Um, how much Mike Valletta can you get in your Do you opinion? like that it started with spearmint milk? I, I hope that there's, a, there's a, a hat tip from you about the way I started thinking about WA there. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I've been, I'm in a state surrounded by farmers' union signs. I've not been able to think about much except flavoured milk <laughs> in the last few weeks. So the, the spearmint getting a run. Um, also, that the green milk in Canberra, I think, is getting back up again. Uh, the milk, the milk is going to get involved with the Canberra Raiders once more. The green milk that was the sponsor of the Raiders for a long time. Uh, I, I know we've had some correspondence from Canberra about that too. So a lot of exciting milk-related developments in Australia domestically. Didn't we agree to follow the Raiders purely because of the green milk around this time last yeah. year? So Yeah, up the milk. Up the milk. Go you good thing. Uh, $7.46, a very generous contribution from John Lansell. Uh, we said it was Alan Border's best bowling in Test cricket. We received the message from Jeremy Burke in response to that. I said, oh, how, how gutted must have Peter Taylor and Trevor Holmes been uh, as the selected spinners not to have taken wickets while their captain Alan Border's running through them. And Jeremy wanted to make it abundantly clear that, no, it's AB who would have been 
pissed off at his two spinners because they were bowling woefully before he brought himself on. Uh, of course, it was Sydney in the 80s uh, when um, the, the pitch used to turn square and Border had to do the job himself. But it wasn't 7.46, Jeff. It was something to do with sweat. The clue coming in from John Lansall was don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. And that was enough because this was uh, a set of figures I was looking at even before we discussed Border. John Lever was a left-arm quick in the 70s and 80s. He was part of that great Essex side that made a lot of finals and uh, played at the pointy end of seasons a lot through that period. He's on all of those Essex honours boards about a million times for his many, many five-wicket hauls and and ten-wicket matches. But he played for England as well. And in 1977, he debuted in India. He took ten for on debut, including those first innings figures of seven for 46, the nerd pledge number. But the the sweat relation comes into the third test in that series in Delhi, and it was a giant controversy at the time because it was a ball-tampering controversy. They, they have happened before. They, they're not entirely confined to the last couple of years <laughs> because, because it was so hot and the England bowlers were sweating and they had long hair, they were complaining about sweat getting into their eyes, running into their eyes, or the, the, the wet hair flicking into their eyes when they were running into bowl. And so the team physio recommended that they put gauze strips with Vaseline, sort of, sort of soaked in Vaseline before they attached them to their faces, which was apparently something that marathon runners do, which of course means that when you're using the sweat off your face, it's become all mixed with Vaseline. Um, the umpires twigged about this and then there was a, a ball tampering Rao from Bishan Beatty was captaining India and Tony Gregg was captaining England and uh, Tony Gregg said, oh, well, it was it was the wrong thing to do and we shouldn't have done it, but we didn't realise and it was all an honest mistake and, and Bishan Beatty took a, a much more dim view of things than that and so it, it was a, a furor at the time and it's something that still gets uh, looked back to and spoken about, the Vaseline tampering with the gauze and the sweat and the 7 for 46 and John Lever in Delhi in the 1970s. Yeah, it never got any better for J.K. Lever in terms of bowling figures the first time of asking 7 for 46. He, of course, also uh, bowled the first ball of the centenary test uh, later on in that season. So they went straight from India, five test matches there, and then over to Melbourne for the centenary test. He picked up the first wicket of, of that test match as well. So uh, John Lever, who uh, went on to play 21 test matches and took 73 wickets at an average of... 20, just under 27, but yes, uh, never more uh, important nor controversial than in that first week at Delhi. We were looking at Greg Sykes's number of $2.03, 203, through a few different lenses last week. We looked at Martin Moxon, Dougie Brown, Ed Smith. Greg was enjoying all of those stories. He says, we still haven't got it right, and it was not, as we guessed, linked to Ireland or to a batsman's score. It is linked to an international player. Uh, what have you got, Adam, for 203? Yeah, I read the the, the the message slightly differently. I thought that he was uh, referring to it not being an Ireland score of 203, so I've gone down a slightly different uh, angle to you here. I mean, in terms of caps, it was Slasher Mackay's cap, Anderson Cummins, likewise, two uh, recent subjects on <laughs> story time. But England's 203rd uh, test player was a man by the name of Charlie Hallows. He only played a, a couple of test matches. He was unlucky not to play more. He was a legend in Lancashire. Uh, they won the championship with him at the helm in 1927 and 1928. 
1928, he made 1,000 runs in May, only the, the second player after WG Grace to achieve that feat. And he was recognised as a Wisden Cricketer of the Year accordingly. Uh, but the link to Ireland was that later in his career, he was a classic professional uh, and he took a gig over in Ireland uh, to uh, play and coach and teach over in Dublin. So he ended up back in Lancashire and, and Worcestershire indeed uh, later on coaching uh, at the back end of his life. Uh, but he did have that stint in Ireland, which is why I thought he might be the connection as the 203rd English Test cricketer. But on reflection, uh, I think you might be a bit closer than I am. If it's not related to Ireland at all, then that's not it. But also, neither is this answer it, because William Porterfield, the Irish champion who was the captain for a very long time until recently, has played 203 times with the shamrock on his shoulder across all formats. So there's an Ireland 203. As far as other things that don't relate to Ireland whatsoever, I'd like to the fact that RJ Jadeja batted 203 times for India, which wouldn't be so notable on its own, except that Ravindra Jadeja, no relation, has recently gone on to bat 204 times for India. So they're <laughs> right next to each other on the list of innings played, the two Jadejas. Uh, no one in women's cricket has had the chance to bat that many times in, in any format of the games. Matali Raj has played 209 one days, but hasn't got to bat in 203 of them. And the only other thing that I can suggest is that Mataya Muralitharan, in all formats for Sri Lanka, took 203 catches which is a lot of bloody catches when you think about it. But yeah. then you think about the fact that it's a 20-year career. And so if you ration it out, it's only 10 per year. So uh, just by being there for a really long time, Murali managed to get himself a, a pretty good tally, despite not always being the most reliable hands in the game. I reckon we're going to be returning back to that 203 next week. Thank you, Greg Sykes, for uh, your fun messages in the DMs during the week. We had another good message from Alex Brown. He sent through 236. Last week we said underarm. Jeff, because the, the 236 was the score that New Zealand were chasing in that game, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's that's what they needed to get, and they were on 232 when the underarm ball was bowled. So I thought that was a pretty good ref for someone who was definitely sending us a New Zealand number. Alex Brown said it is a New Zealand number, but it's not that New Zealand number. He also told us that there's a a family myth that Brian McKechnie, who faced that delivery, is a distant cousin of Alex Brown's mum because her maiden name was McKechnie. It's (laughs) always good when you get those stories. My mother thinks that we're descended from Henry VIII. I'm I'm not sure that's entirely true or that there's any basis for that. But you've got to love a parent with a random descendant story or... As, uh, as someone once said to me, everybody who thinks they were reincarnated, you know, nobody thinks that they were nobody. They all think they were the prince of whatever or in a previous life. In any case, we might have solved this one on our own, but we didn't need to because guess who came to the rescue once again? Dane Hanstead, who solved two answers last week, is back at it, Adam. What a man. What a man. What a really good man. <laughs> Dane Hanstead. <laughs> has had our back whenever we can't find a number at the moment there are a coterie of patrons who come to our defense there's abby sims there's pat rogers and there's now dane hanstead has got in on the fun over the last few weeks and he solved this for us and naturally john leather let us not forget the moniker hypercost when he puts on his hypercost mask <laughs> and goes on the internet to do stats for all of the people dane hanstead has got this one 236 Chuck a decimal point in there in monetary style. 
2.36 was the batting average of Chris Martin, a, a famous number, a respected and admired number. He made double figures once in over 100 test innings. Uh, that was 12 not out with three edges through the slips. Every other time, I think he had something like 46 ducks or thereabouts or maybe 50-odd scores when you throw in the not-outs. Quite a remarkable batting career, Chris Martin. And uh, I, I know that that's right because Alex Brown gave us a hint saying, I'm four square behind you getting this next time. And Chris Martin went on to buy a four square supermarket in New Zealand, which is what he does with his time now. So thank you, Alex Brown, and thanks, Dane Hanstead. If you want to learn more about that supermarket and that changing career, Barat Sanderason read a lovely profile with Chris Martin last year when he was in at New Zealand. Let's go back to 257, Julian Campbell. We said, was him a few weeks ago, uh, Julian uh, inquired as to whether we'd uh, uh, gone beyond how long it would be to revisit on Storytime. There is no statute of limitations on Nerd Pledge and on Storytime. If you've got a number we got wrong 12 months ago when we had Andy Zaltzman working with it, come back at us. You tell us and, and we'll go again. Don't worry about that. This is a show about cricket history. And if your number's a long time ago, it's become part of cricket history. And exactly. then we'll talk about it in that sense. Exactly. So it wasn't Wazir Macram. He said he enjoyed the segment and hearing about that innings. But in his mind, he had 257 as a real opener kind of number. So that meant I was able to rule out Marlon Samuels, who made a 257 against Queensland in 2005. I was certainly able to rule out Samit Patel, who made an unbeaten 257 against Gloucestershire a couple of years ago. Bill Edridge made a, a rapid 257, albeit at number three for Middlesex in, in that glorious mm -hmm. era they had just after the war. But what about WG Grace? I mean, yeah, sure, he made three triple hundreds and had a few other scores between 257 and, and 300, but he did make a 257 while opening uh, in the summer of 1895 against Kent. He ended up winning the game with fourth innings runs as well, so he made 257 in the first dig and an unbeaten 73 uh, to make sure that Gloucestershire won the game Jeff's favourite county um, so I've gone through all of that all these 257s and I thought I'll just check the cap numbers oh yeah Gary Kirsten he was South Africa's 257th uh, test cricketer <laughs> that's more likely to be it and given we were talking about Peter Kirsten earlier in the show I think that's a, the right place to leave this one but who doesn't want to remember WG Grace's work in the summer of 1895 you know what a time it was let's Let's cast our minds back. It was the summer of 1895. <laughs> Standing on my mama's porch. The last one that we didn't get right in the last few weeks, the $6.77 from George Norman, who told us that it related to a cricketer named during our interview with William McGuinness. I went through that episode and listed about 48 <laughs> cricketers who were mentioned by William McGuinness in that hour or so. One of them was Norman Cowan's Adam. Yeah, and Alan Edgar was all over this. Uh, he immediately wrote me an email saying, six for 77, a figures engraved on a Middlesex supporting teenager's memory occurred during a test very famous as one of our finest when he had his day in the sun. Of course, 82-83, Jeff, MCG. Um, it was Cowan's in the second dig taking six for 77. We all remember Ian Botham at the end, of course, taking the final wicket, the partnership between Border and Thompson, but the person that put them in a position to win the game was Norman Cowens, who was mentioned in passing by William McInnes when we interviewed him a couple of months ago. And linked to that, I should also mention before we sign off today that uh, there is a brilliant uh, episode of the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast that was dropped last week that was uh, done in conjunction with Chance to Shine and Black History Month where they talked to uh, 
Cowan's old Middlesex teammate Roland Butcher who was the first black man to play for England along with Devon Malcolm Alex Tudor and Ebony Rainford Brent uh, it's well worth your time it's an uncomfortable listen at different times uh, listening to some of these stories but uh, I think it's an important listen as well so the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast jump on there and have a listen uh, and you'll hear more about some pretty amazing trailblazing stories it was also written up in the spin on the Guardian this last week I think as well there was Norman Cowan's getting a run in there as well so it's interesting how when you you hear about something on the show and then suddenly the the name pops up in a whole bunch of different contexts I'm pleased to say that we were deemed correct with our work on the 298 from Richard Clark where I had to draw a link between diabetes Reginald Tip Foster in 1903 or whatever it was Back to Daryl Mitchell playing for Worcestershire over 100 years later. Richard Clark has said, we've got that one right. But the link didn't necessarily have to go through the whole diabetes thing. It was simply that Tip Foster made 287 and it was the highest score by a Worcestershire player until Daryl Mitchell beat it 106 years later. Good enough, I say, Richard Clark, giving us a tick in that column. We're also on the money with 869, Jeff, thanks to Christopher Byrne for that. We said it was the number of wickets that Courtney Welsh took at Gloucestershire. He said that we were spot on. It was one of his cricketing heroes who had loyalty to the forgotten county, as he's describing it, Jeff, because you keep uh, misplacing Gloucestershire when running through the 18 sides. He goes on to add that surely a county with WG Grace, Wally Hammond and Mike Proctor has to be more memorable than, say, North Hans or Derbyshire. I mean, over to you, Jeff. I mean, this, this, is, this is your bag. Okay, look, the thing is that North Hans and Derbyshire are next to each other, so they make themselves more memorable as a conglomerate. You sort of know, you know there are, there are three in the middle somewhere when I'm trying to do this on the map in my head. But then Christopher also wrote back when I was chatting with him about this in, in the DMs and said that Bristol is not actually technically in the county of Gloucestershire to begin with. It's it's near there. It's where they're playing their games, but it's not actually in Gloucestershire. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. I don't claim to be an expert on English county lines, but this is what I was told. And so that makes it more forgivable. I think I know that I know what Bristol is. How could I forget Bristol? Banksy is from there. Match and Tendulkar is from there. (laughs) And... That's where Ben Stokes had his night out in the street. I mean, it's it's the home of Embargo. So Bristol lives long in the memory. It's just whether it's actually part of Gloucestershire. Thank you, Christopher Byrne, for getting back to us and confirming we got that right. Jeff, we received a number of uh, messages on on Patreon and on Twitter uh, thanking us for rebooting the Jared Waitley interview from a few years ago. I think that that's uh, reflective of the fact that when we popped that interview out, we weren't a weekly show. We used to record the final word when we could. It was a far smaller operation, but it's been kind of cool over the last six months or so that we've been able to uh, give these interviews a second airing. And in the case of Jared's, I listened back to it as well, and it, it was... Really inspirational, actually, without overplaying this. I mean, hearing Jared talk about the joy of sport and the way that he interprets the jobs that we all do and the fact that we need to remember that first and foremost, sport is about enjoyment and offsetting all the negativity and all the cynicism and and, and all the rest that seems to dominate uh, so many of our conversations around the game. It, it was refreshing and timely, I think. So, And that was tapped into by Paul Johnson and also Bernard Sayer, who sent us a, a message which summed that up. It seems my post is a little early, but I loved listening back to the Jared Waitley interview. I think he was spot on with our negativity focus in Australian sport. I stopped going to AFL footy this year because I got so tired of negative commentary from my fellow supporters in the crowd. You're supposed to support a team, not ride them into the ground. And 
Yeah, I, I share in that. I think sometimes when we conduct our conversations with sport online, as we do so often, that yeah, we, we can focus too much on everything that's wrong rather than so much that's right. That in the end is is why we're here, and hopefully it's why anybody listening is here because it's fun and it's good and it makes us feel better about life. Uh, we have enjoyed reposting all of those interviews this is the last one of those we've gone through our catalogue so will anderson is another person who we spoke to about the the strange joys and, and obsessions of sport and he'll be the last of our reboots for a while i suppose until maybe we get another year or two down the road and then we can reboot things that we <laughs> were used to be recent the old will become new and the new will become old again uh, let's take a quick breather and then we'll be in to the final word with will anderson Jeff, some great news from Lord's Taverners. Lloyd Scott has done it. Yesterday, he completed the Three Peaks Challenge. He went up Ben Nevis, he went up Scaffold Pike, and he went up Snowden yesterday, completing the mission uh, in that 130-pound deep-sea diving suit. It's quite a remarkable effort, and we're so pleased to have been supporting it on The Final Word. It does sound a bit like he got into a, a fight in Glasgow or something, like, oh, I'll go up you, Ben Nevis. Oh, you back off, mate. I'll go up you. Um <laughs> It didn't happen. He raised a bunch of money. Uh, maybe it should be called the Lloyd's Taverners because he's he's pretty much written his name on it by now. He's climbed three mountains carrying a ridiculous amount of weight in giant, heavy, like, lead-lined boots. It's insane, but he's done it. He's succeeded, and it looks like he's raised close to 60,000 pounds, and you can still chuck in for that at lordstaverners.org. So let's hear from the Lord's Taverners about how the final climb went down or up. It's a real team effort, so it's as much as about everybody else as it is me. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all the contribution you've done to just get me this far. Thank you. Ready to start stage one of our Three Peaks Challenge with uh, the highest peak in the UK ahead of us. I'm not sure what sort of challenges I'm actually going to face. There's that element of the unknown. We've been going about three and a half hours now. Tough. It's been challenging, not as I expected at all. There's lots and lots of, of steps. It's like stop, start. And every time I have to start again, it's like pulling that weight up. Lloyd is an inspiring bloke. He's an inspiring bloke to be around. It goes so, so fast, changing lives. And they're lives that we can't just abandon. <laughs> Relieved, I suppose. Now that we've managed to uh, do the first part, and it is just the first part. When I had my illness and the leukemia, it really brought that side of things out, uh, and I just wanted to uh, put something back and, and to help others. For me, the most impressive thing on a personal basis is giving children the opportunity to be involved in sport that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, I remember when I had uh, my own leukemia and I, I actually couldn't play sport for some time. I realised just how much I actually missed it. So to think of these children that actually um, otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity to experience the excitement, the thrill, the joy, you know, and sometimes the disappointment of sport, um, it's something very close to my heart and something that I want to um, make sure that they're able to experience. Thank you.
the uh, my three peaks challenge. The prospects of the weather holding out um, does, um, you know, may not be quite like this when we get up tomorrow. It's like long and relentless. I'm pretty glad that it's uh, the last one, I suppose, yeah. I wonder what I'd be thinking when I actually got to the top, but the conditions were so appalling. It really was just a question of you know me and everybody else getting up there and now getting down safely. We're raising money for the for the tabners um, and those uh, you know disadvantaged and disabled children. Desperately want to be able to put on some uh, programs and get them out and, and, and give them opportunities in life through sport again. It's a really, really tough time for charities at the moment. But for the Taverners, I can speak from my heart because it's something that's going to be affecting us uh, over the next period of time. We have a duty of service that we need to pay to the young people out there. And it's that service that we're renowned for and it's the work that we do with our programmes running. We can't just stop those programmes because there's young people that rely on us. So if you think my efforts are worth a penny or a pound for your time, um, please donate. I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and joining us on the show today, Will Anderson, a, a man who came to prominence in the early 2000s, is extremely hilarious and in that way is very much like Shane Watson. Uh, welcome to the show, Will. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, I'm a divisive figure. Uh, some would feel that I'm only starting to reach my potential now. Uh, yes, very Shane Watson-like and afraid of ghosts. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's a famous Shane Watson story, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. They were staying in that castle in Edinburgh or whatever, and he had to sleep Durham. in the foot of somebody else's bed because he thought there was a ghost in his room. That's right. And when Darren Goff was bowling to him the next day, he started pretending to be a ghost <laughs> while he was running down the pitch. It was a beautiful moment in the UK Australia relations. We wanted to get you on the show because, uh, look, I guess like many things in our lives, um, Twitter is the eventual cause of much of what happens. But you're someone who, you know, you got half a million odd followers, a lot of them are from overseas, and and yet I reckon in your top five most tweeted about topics is cricket. Did you have any moment of hesitation about outing yourself to the broader public as a cricket follower? Oh, absolutely not for a start. Like, I mean, I love cricket. I, ne I never realised there was something I was meant to be ashamed of. <laughs> um, uh, but I have, like, the interesting thing is the great thing, like, I did this uh, podcast, there's this wonderful American comedian called Jackie Cation, and she has this podcast called The Dork Forest, and you go on and you will talk about whatever your dorkdom is, whatever it is that you're particularly interested in and you'll try to explain it to her. It's a really good concept, mm. right? And so I went on and, and did cricket. And the idea of like trying to explain cricket to an American who's not even really particularly into sports, you do start to realise <laughs> the myriad of complications that our beautiful game has that we've been raised with so that we take for granted. But when you're trying to explain them to a complete stranger, um, you know, to me only unfolds the majesty of the game <laughs> rather than makes it ridiculous. And it, it shows you sort of how hard it is to get across in that um, I recently put a post up about doing some stats on Elise Perry, which which you posted, and Dave Anthony, who does the Dollop podcast, who's a massive baseball fan, just replied saying, this is gibberish. I felt quite touched at being personally insulted by someone who, who runs a podcast that I enjoy. But, well, what uh, I liked about that, though, was then somebody who was either an American or Australian decided they would be the translator and put 
put her statistics in baseball terms <laughs> and explained it to him. And I felt like I learned something about baseball through our interaction as well. I'm not sure if the translation was that great because it had, had it been um, actual, she would have been the greatest baseballer of all time, bar none, you know, which maybe she could be. But, you know, it, it was nice for them to try. I mean, technically, you know, based on the fact that she managed to play, you know, soccer for Australia and she's managed to dominate cricket for Australia, I, I would back if she wanted to play baseball for Australia, at least Perry would probably do a pretty good job for it. Better than Babe Ruth. That is the, the news line out of this show. <laughs> well, I was thinking about this when, um, uh, about the Twitter thing before we uh, had a chat with you. You know how, like, when you live overseas like I do, your Australian accent gets broader. Uh, I think it's... Uh, uh, an affliction of most people that live abroad is it the same uh, to an extent with the amount you tweet about cricket when you were splitting your time between America and Australia that was almost a reflection of um, how you were holding on to your Austra- Australian identity by um, tweeting a lot about the national game uh, also the hours tend to work for overseas tours that's the great thing you know I mean like yeah, right. here I would have to get up in the middle of the night to watch an ashes but mm-hmm. like when you're yeah. over there you know the time the time period works very well nothing better than spending six hours while people are sleeping in Australia tweeting endlessly about cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The thing that made me think that, you know, we might have some shared interests was a tweet that you put out where you said, am I the only one who sees the giant Gatorade bottle come out and thinks, wow, I could make that into a massive bong? (laughs) 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 And I I went to Eltham High School where literally half the school population would go down behind the oval at lunchtime, hop over the fence, go down the, the banks of the creek and then get involved in some hydroengineering. It was a very Australian moment. That I mean, all they need is a giant piece of uh, garden hose yeah. and you could re- that's all you really need to get that done. <laughs> always, always, always chop from the middle when you're stealing your neighbour's hose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Golden rule. That's where the sweet spot is. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I grew up in Dandenong, so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a correlation there between Eltham and probably where you grew up as well, Will, in Gippsland. How much cricket? It was part of your childhood in Sale and uh, growing up. What were the main streets of Gippsland like on the cricket field? So my father, uh, Graham, was a legendary country cricketer. He played sort of big country level and, uh, you know, if it were modern times, I imagine might have you know, played at even a higher level than that. You know, he was a very, Mm. very talented cricketer, but obviously, you know, he's a dairy farmer and this was sort of in the days where, you know, if you made the big country team, you might go up for a country week tournament, but that was about the, you know, the grand extent of what your cricket ambitions would be. Um, Mm. And he played country cricket until he was, I think, well, late 50s, early 60s. Like, he was one of those guys who was, you know, still going around in B grade at Hayfield. (laughs) It's fair to say that I'm not sure that the... Because he would bat left-handed. He was a really good... uh, And he would bowl right arm off spin. But it's fair to say I'm not sure that his uh, elbow was going the 15 degrees (laughs) necessary. There might have been a little bit of morally action by the later years of his 50s, I would have suggested. I think you earned that. I think probably over, say, the age of 50, you get one extra degree of flex with each year. That should be the... <laughs> so he was a he was a gun cricketer and he would have had grand ambitions for me to also be a, a good cricketer. My brother was a pretty good cricketer, but he would have loved my dad. I remember he, he would tell this story. I was about three or four and, um, you know, I'm the oldest kid and he's up playing a big tournament in the city and apparently at the end of the day, at the end of the game, um, I stood on uh, somebody's, uh, you know, sort of gear in the middle of the room and I made all the cricketers gather around and watch me and I, I went through all the umpire's signals. So, I did, you know, six and four and you're out and all these sort of <laughs> 
things. And Dad at that time, said, he said he was like, oh, God, this is great. He's going to play cricket for Australia. Uh, turns out <laughs> I, I just was going to be a professional show-off in front of any audience that would gather around. But, um, yeah, he was a really great cricketer. I, I was a, I tried hard but um, was, was never a particularly good cricketer. But cricket was a massive part of our life, and it's still a massive part of his life. I mean, he, he still coaches at, you know, he's mid-70s now, and he's still coaching cricket down there. He He's still involved. He'll go in and score on the weekends at Hayfield. So that's his sort of social life still. Is there a bit of pressure being the son of someone who's really good at sport and then you end up getting into a sort of arts, creative world that's something completely different? I was lucky that I was a pretty good AFL footballer, like an Aussie rules footballer. So I had some sporting ability. But yes, there was always a, a touch of, you know, when I was on the cricket field, my dad was a legendary cricketer and I was a bit of a dud. And the comparison, as you know, with cricket, there's plenty of time for people to mm. completely dissect your character. And uh, yeah, a fair bit of that was done. And I, I I heard a lot in my junior years how I was nowhere near as good as my dad and, mm. you know, speculation about my mum's infidelity and all these sort of, you know, things, all the classy things you hear in a day at the cricket. I can't believe that would happen on a cricket field. That just sounds completely unlike anything we've heard over the last couple of years. Plus, they've got the numbers as well in cricket, not so much in footy, where you can just put put your numbers next to someone else and say, well, you average this, he averaged this. Yeah, and I was like, I mean, I'm not a particularly, like my dad's a bit shorter than I am, you know, that classic sort of, you know, a bit more compact, a bit mm. more coordinated, whereas I was sort of, the, the, you know, six foot two and a half when I was 13 or 14, and... Uh, wasn't yeah, fast enough to be a big fast bowler or something. There's nothing you can do with your body when you... you know, I had the same sort of thing. You're just this long, gangly string of bits that aren't really connected together very well. And there's no way you can get a signal to your foot that's that far away to do what it needs to do in time. It just can't happen. Uh, you know, I I asked Steve Waugh. I was interviewing him on the radio many years ago. I, I, he was my one of my absolute heroes. And I was really excited to have him on the show. And afterwards, um, I was so excited that I he'd left some of his tea in the studio and I actually drank the rest of his tea <laughs> <laughs> I was like, like I'd be infused with the spirit of Steve War. like suddenly we were spit sisters or something and uh, but I asked him I said you know when those great West Indian attacks were bowling to you and you know the ball's coming down at you know one, 150 k's plus you know how do you have the the time to make the decision and then get the rest of your body to you know, actually play the right shot. And he just said to me, he said, well, he said, you don't. He said, you practice and you practice and you practice and then you get out in the middle and you hope in that moment that mm. your instincts will take over, that you will do the right thing because yep. you don't actually have the time to make the decision. And I've, I often think about that with, with my career with stand-up and stuff is that on the days when I'm thinking about what it is that I'm doing, if mm. I have to think about it too mm. much, then I'm not in the right spot. You've got to kind of prepare properly and then get out there and just try to play the game. So just to close the loop on that, Will, when did you stop playing and do you still get dragged into the occasional sort of jazz game or celebrity game or something like that, which gives you the chance to turn out and put on the creams? No, I, uh, I when I retired, I retired gracefully. <laughs> I walked away <laughs> from the game. Look, I think that the game doesn't exist where... I, I, I think this is the mistake sometimes we often you know make with you know sport which is that in some ways the connection between that you love a sport that the love of it will be enhanced by the playing of it mm. and I'm not sure mm. that that is always the case in fact the only time in my life where I went through a period where I didn't really love cricket was when I was 
playing cricket and not being particularly good at cricket and mm. then started to have a resentment to cricket. Whereas, like, as a, an observer of cricket, as an audience member, as somebody who doesn't consider myself to be a competitor or someone who wants to actually play cricket, I'm someone who likes to watch cricket. Mm. I like to read about cricket. I like to talk about cricket. But I actually don't get any particular joy from playing cricket. Mm. So why why do we love cricket? Like, it's such a bloody ridiculous sport. It's completely absurd in every way. What is it? Well, for me, I mean, look, it's been said before, and I'm certainly not the the first person to say it, but it's, you know, it's it's physical chess. You know, the, the great thing about cricket is that it's operating, particularly test match cricket, you know, it's the shorter form's a little bit different in this regard, but in every moment, it's not just your skill and, you know, physicality, the fact that you could hit a ball or bowl a ball or these sort of things, but it's a series of mind games and calculations, you know, whether it be about the setting of the field, who you've brought on to bowl, what their record is against you, what shot they played last time, what shot you think they're going to play next time. All these things are a game of strategy, a game of psychology. And, you know, you saw it with the great players. Yes, Shane Warne could bowl a wrong and, or, yeah, sorry, a bowl a leggy that'll rip around your legs. But at the same time, he got like half the people out in his career by intimidating them, thinking them out, you know, like getting inside their head in that moment. So his capacity for playing that sort of mental game, it was as impressive as like the physicality of what it is that he Mm. was doing. So for me, that's part of it. Like, you know, it's cricket is one of those things that almost like it's, you know, it's sports meets Dungeons and Dragons or something. It's Mm. a a game of strategy as much as it's a game of physicality. On one of your many podcasts, Will, uh, you had Andy Zaltzman on last year, who's a friend of Jeff and mine uh, and a statistician for the BBC doing his cricket these days as well as doing comedy. I recall you two talking about how it's almost a microcosm for life for some types of people's personalities, like people who are drawn into cricket like life being a little bit unexplainable, a bit odd. Is that how you interpret your own interest in the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of those things about cricket that is so, you know, particularly uh, cruel is that idea of that, you know, one bad decision can really cost you. Like, you could be in the best form of your life as, you know, a batsman and you get a jaffa, you know, in the first over and you're out and you're done. That's your, that's your day yep. done. Like, you know, you, you fumble a ball in Aussie rules, you know, early on in the game, you get another opportunity a minute later to go and redeem your mistake. And so mm. cricket... particularly in that way can be so cruel the idea that sometimes it isn't resolved is like I think really important like you know it's one of the few games that we have that you know like some people use that as a criticism of the game they're like you know you can play for five days and not get a result and I'm like yeah you can play for five days and not get a result. So much of your life, if you just take on the example of that things sometimes you'll play for five days and at the end there will be no result yep. other than that you played for five days. Oh, absolutely. That's a better way. Like, so much of life isn't about a clear win or a clear loss, you know. So much of what you do in life is about, well, we did that. And here's what happened at the end of it. But there's no clear yep. winner or loser. And, and we can think about, yeah, there were a couple of high points and there were a couple of low points, but in the end, what's the result? I don't know. Yeah. You, you can have romantic relationships that could be called a draw at the end of it. You go, well, well some stuff happened. Uh, no one really emerged. There's no yeah. clarity about the result. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah we, we were both losers today. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm kind of imagining this big group of comics, Will, who kind of huddle around the Crick Info scorecard. I mean, I mentioned Zaltzman before, but Adam Zwar is another cricket nut who you've had on your show but engages a lot with the work we do on this podcast and other bits and pieces in our professional life. Is there a big band of people in your industry who share this love of cricket? There's... Well, the ones who do are very passionate about it. You know, I think that that's more the point. You know, you have in comedy... I think cricket in particular is one of those things that lends itself to, yeah, the deeper that you're willing to dive into it, Mm. you know, then the more, you know, joy that you're going to get out of it. And, you know, I think that, like, comedians often have that personality of going, well, if you're interested in something, you want to learn every single thing that you possibly can about that topic. And, you know, for me, I, I, I certainly am one of those people who probably reads about cricket and, like, uh, listens to discussions about cricket probably more than I actually watch cricket. Often I find mm. that I watch cricket so that I can understand the storylines, you know, that so that, you know, the, the game itself, while, you know, is, like, I, I, I enjoy watching cricket, I enjoy the stories around cricket as equally as much, and often I'm just watching it so that I can then understand the conversations and, you know, understand why this person's, you know, under pressure or... To me, that's the... I mean, the joy of cricket, to me, is as much about you know, the drama over the marshes or the, you know, is this person going to, um, you know, like, I mean, for me, the, the, yeah, so for example. It's a character drama. Right, it's a character drama. And the more you know the characters and the more flawed the characters are or the more that, like, I mean, you know, I would never, I mean, obviously the sandpaper incident was like, you know, darkest day in Australian sport and all that. And I believe that at, at the time as well. But now what it's set up you know, is this amazing opportunity for these players to have a redemption story or for us to see how that story unfolds. And in the in the great you know, story of Steve Smith's career, for example, mm. it's going to be, you know, incredible to see, you know, what sort of cricketer he comes back as. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, uh, what sort of cricketer David Warner comes back as. And and Bancroft, you know, when we're recording this, has you know, made a whole bunch of runs in his first uh, you know, match back with the Red Bull. And... To me, I'm suddenly much more interested in his career and where it's going to go than I probably was mm. pre-Sandpaper game. What I'm finding fascinating at the moment is I was listening to some talkback radio the other day and it seems as though people are willing to give Smith an opportunity. Uh, they acknowledge that Bancroft's role in what happened in South Africa was largely what he was directed to do, but there is an enormous amount of hatred for David Warner, like an unprecedented amount of hate for this bloke in terms of a sport that's typically genteel. Your perspective will tapping into public opinion as often as you do do you think there's even a way back for him in the way the public perceive him or or is he too far gone and even if he does come back and pile on runs he'll never really recover in the public eye uh, I think probably a little bit of both, but I think more than anything, if he comes back and makes runs, all will be forgiven. I mean, come on. Like, I mean... Warn- That's Australia. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, if you wrote down on a piece of paper the things that Warney did, <laughs> like, you know, it's fair to say he's got a longer list than uh, David Warner did. And look, there's a, a bit of, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of David Warner's attitude that people didn't like in the first place. And they were just looking for an excuse to, you know, to... But also, also I do think there is a certain element of us all suspecting that the major part of who was to blame for what happened was David Warner. Um, If 
in his absence, we'd had a whole bunch of other people come in and stake their claim to be in that side, then I think perhaps we might not have heard much about David Warner and he might have gone on the international sort of, you know, uh, 2020 circuit mm. and, and, you know, that sort of thing and probably not played cricket for Australia. But luckily for him, I think that, you know, no one stepped up enough that there's an opportunity for him if he comes back and scores runs. I would love to see, I don't think this will happen, but I would love to see him come back and do something in order to win the Australian public back. You know, it's something... I feel like he needs to do something that shows I've changed as a person. And what I would say that is, is I think that he should bat at three in the Ashes. Now, I know that's a weird thing to say, but I reckon the first drop is our trouble spot for the Ashes. There's no one... There's been a lot of talk about moving Smith up the order, and I just don't think that's sensible. I think you keep him at four, right? We're going to have a couple of openers that we'll be able to... Whether it be Burns or whether it be Harris or whether it be Bancroft, I think we've got some openers who can open. What we need is a guy at three who can be there if we're, if we're, you know, one for none, like, you know, if, you know who, could, who knows how to open, but is also in that position if that we manage to pile on 150, you know, for none on the first day, can come in at, at first down and sort of, you know, bash it around a bit. I think Warner's that guy. And I think if he came back and said, here's what I want, I want to bat in the hardest position in the lineup, and I feel like I owe this team something, I think he's got the game for it, and I think it would be something that, you know, he could say to the Australian public, I'm willing to come back and really bat in the hardest position in the team and take the responsibility and I'm a different person and I understand that I need to do this. Like make that as, as a, an offering, a, yeah. a, a gesture. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's interesting that your response to it when it happened was uncharacteristically serious. You posted, um, remembering that wonderful three minutes when I woke up this morning, checked the overnight results and the only thing I was disappointed about was the score. Right. Um, and that was it, it was, it was interesting to see that it, it got you. It hit you as it hit a lot of people. Oh, no, I I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated by what happened because I just thought it was completely against the, you know... Look, there has been so many things over the years that we have done that have been against the spirit of cricket. So it's not like it was the first and it won't be the last. Mm. However, it did kind of feel like we weren't cheats. Now, it's funny in cricket because... There's so many rules about what is cheating and what yep. isn't cheating. And, you know, what's like, you know, are you meant to walk if you nick it? Are you not meant to walk if you nick it? That's cheating as much as anything else. Like, mm-hmm. there are so many elements of the game yeah. that are clearly, you know, cheating. Well, if you claim a catch, the bounces, you're a cheat. But right. if you don't walk when you nick it, that's apparently fine. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a complicated set thing. of guidelines by which yeah. we live. And <laughs> you're allowed to throw the ball on the ground to rough it up. Yep. And you're allowed to, I don't know, like, I mean, you know, people have used lollies and and chewing gum and all these sort of things, but it just felt very un-Australian. Like we, and it's a horrible word to use, but it felt yeah. like what we say our values are around the Australian cricket team. It felt very. It felt like we were just suddenly like, well, all that really matters is winning, and I yeah. think that we lose when we think that all that matters is winning. Of course, it's great to win, but it's winning in itself. It's a made-up game. It Mm. means nothing. It's a game, right? The only way it means something is if you value the Mm. game. And if you cheat to win the game, then you haven't really won in the first place. It's about how you win as much as winning. And some of our most glorious times as like fans of the sport have been, you know, heroic losses or, you know, valiant efforts, Mm. you know, and I admire those much more than 
um, than I do somebody, you know, cheating in order to win. Well, it's it's a strange concept because the satisfaction in winning is being better than the uh, the opponent. Right. And if you cheat, you're not better than them. You you weren't, and you had to do something else. And you look, there is that element of like, well, everybody's cheating, and if everybody's cheating, mm. how come you, uh, we can't cheat as well? But I, I just think that that is a, a terrible precedent to set. And I was disappointed. There was just so many elements of it that I was disappointed because the act itself, whatever, in the grand scheme of things, you know, there are much worse things that happen all the time. In fact, even in the sport, there are worse things that happen than, than what happened. But it was the fact that a younger player had been kind of made the scapegoat mm. of this situation. If you're going to do it, do it yourself. Don't, you know, kind of get the youngest guy in the team and recruit him and sort of be like, you're the one who has to do this to fit in. The fact that it betrayed that there was a power struggle between our sort of two best batsmen who clearly were on different pages and had become, you know, had a relationship where they were essentially had competing interests and that, you know, that leadership wasn't shown in that situation. Like there was a whole myriad of levels uh, that I was disappointed in what happened. But I'm also glad that the punishments were so strong because I'm a big believer in over-punishing, like, in this regard, because I think you're... Best way back is to be overpunished. Mm. If you're underpunished, yep. it sticks with you forever. But when these players come back, everyone's going to say they did their time. Even Warner, they're going to go, right. well, they did their time. They were away for a very long time. They've paid for what they did. They have the opportunity now to come back and you know, build their careers again. Oh, absolutely. Imagine had they uh, given in to some of the public pressure before Christmas and, and reduced the bans on Smith and Warner now, looking back at it a few months later, it would have been the greatest PR calamity. Well, Jeff wrote a book in the aftermath of what happened in South Africa. I've sort of mused that there could be a sociology PhD in the public response alone. What was your perspective on that? I mean, you mentioned that you felt visceral pain as a cricket lover, but the broader way in which the Australian public did respond so fiercely, is that something you would have predicted had it been put to you before, or, or did it sort of outstrip anything we could have possibly expected? Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? As I stare at uh, Jeff's book, which is actually just over there in the pile of books, uh, jammed between a book by Mark, Mike Carlton and one by Sam Mitchell. And uh, <laughs> so, um, it's an uncomfortable it's... menage a trois. <laughs> yeah, I think I bought my dad the Mike Carlton one for Christmas and he bought me the Sam Mitchell one there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that to an outsider it would have seemed like a massive overreaction. I think if you were someone who wasn't Australian and probably if you were an Australian who was hadn't been raised, you know, with cricket and raised with that idea that, you know, the Australian Test cricket captain is, you know, as equally as important job as the Prime Minister of the country, that grand mm. mythos, you know, the, the, you know, it's just not cricket, that sort of... Even though we know that that is bullshit and we know that over the years mm. that has continually been bullshit... We say it and we we believe it to a certain extent. And no, I didn't think the reaction was um, surprising. I actually thought that the reaction was what I imagined it would be. And in some ways, I was uh, gladdened, not because I, I think they deserved it, but it felt like we still cared about something. Mm. I think we, I think we live in this world these days where 
you know, so many times the rules are being broken that we just come to expect that all rules are broken. That, you know, the rich and powerful, you know, can get away with whatever they want. They, you know, they put all their money in Panama and the banks screw us all. And, you know, that we're constantly being cheated in some way and that we had this moment where we could just be like, no, we don't, we don't think this is right and mm. we don't think this is appropriate. Now, did I feel for sorry for the players in the middle of that? Yeah, absolutely I did. I mean, like, you know, they were people who made a, a mistake in the middle of a high-pressure scenario and, you know, it shouldn't be something that they have to live with for the rest of their lives and it eventually became a, a horrible sort of, you know, media pack that was, you know, pretty brutal and I imagine was like, you know, incredibly traumatic for the the people who were at the heart of it. But there was something that I really liked that I was gladdened by that uh, that people still gave a shit about something. I suppose issues like this aside, cricket is inherently a very funny sport. It's ridiculous. A lot of people have made careers around the comedy of it. When I think about it, the 90s for me is sort of peak cricket comedy time. It's like Phil Tufnell batting at 11 for England and dropping catches and being emblematic of that team. It's like the great moustache era with sort of Merv and Bernie. There's <laughs> Dean Jones being angry at everything all the time. There's Warney, of course. You once posted surely if we're going to give someone an OAM for services to Australian cricket it should be Daryl Cullinan. Uh, <laughs> 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 who, uh, if you're born later as a South African batsman that Shane Warne got out a lot. Was cricket funnier in the 90s or were we just young in the 90s therefore it seems like the best? I mean, I do, I, I think that there was certainly still that uh, vibe of like there were some characters that you just loved. I mean, for me, it was, you know, people like Gladstone Small and, like, you know, all these... There were, it was still a bit of an unusual group of people that they'd got together where it felt a bit like... Um, what is that? What are those terrible action movies? The Expendables. Like, often a cricket team would come to, a, <laughs> come to Australia and it felt like a whole bunch of, like... I don't, I don't think these people would ever be in a room together right. if they didn't play cricket together. Like the and, Blues Brothers rounding the band up. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Find the guy where working in the auto shop and the, the waiter and the... But i got to be honest with you. I mean, there's still a lot to, you know, like, there's still a lot of musing about, you know, cricket these days, I would have thought. Like, I mean, you, you just look at the recent results. Like, you know, you've got teams like Sri Lanka beating South Africa in South Africa. You know, you've got... Um, you know, I mean, like, even in Australia at the moment, like, I mean, the marshes were for a long time, you know, I mean, incredibly funny. I mean, that was just a, <laughs> I mean, a grand <laughs> piece of work that, like, you know, was, you know, infinite in its jest, you know. Um, you know, you have the ongoing Glenn Maxwell saga, which in itself has some sort of dark humour, you know. That, it's, there's pathos, but there's humour, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the two, you know, were really running side by side for a long time because it was the, you know, in some ways the marshes who were keeping Glenn Maxwell out of the team to the point where really he should have called yeah just changed his name to Glenn Marsh and been done with it and got picked for Australia <laughs> all the time but um, I think that there is some inherent humour in the you know I mean you've got Usman Khawaja trying to establish himself while his brothers you know <laughs> are getting up to all sorts of horrible business and I mean imagine having to deal with that in your summer not only were you injured coming into the major test but suddenly your brother's all over the newspaper for faking terrorist acts I mean there's a lot of inherent humor still left in the team the fact that Nathan Lyon is you know was the groundskeeper in Adelaide and now is the greatest <laughs> off spinner in the history of Australian cricket I mean 
I still think there's a lot to you know, to like, to laugh at. I mean, come on. Well, the Australian cricket team is being captained by a guy who retired a couple of years ago. <laughs> like, couldn't, couldn't even get picked as the wicketkeeper for his own state. And yet the guy who replaced him as the wicketkeeper, who's the leading run scorer in the domestic competition, now can't get picked for Australia <laughs> because the guy he replaced is captain of Australia. I mean, come on. You've just got to look for the comedy. It's right there. <laughs> if Matthew Wade were captaining Australia, it could be pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> right, right about now. A sliding doors moment had things been different. <laughs> well, going back to the start of your, I guess, radio career, working with Adam Spencer, I mean, that's my first exposure to you as a sort of a, a daily staple of my life in the Triple J breakfast days. Was that a big part of your two bonding as well? Absolutely it was. In fact, the, probably the most memorable thing we ever did on the show was... Uh, before the Australians went to India on that uh, famous tour, I said on the radio that uh, they should have picked a bag of sand rather than Matthew Hayden because at least a bag of sand wouldn't dangle its bat outside off stump and get caught in the slips all the time. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, as everybody famously knows, this was the yeah, the series where he went over and just like could not uh, stop making runs. And I remember I was jogging on uh, Bondi Beach after he'd won, won a, a, made another hundred and been the best player in the game and uh, I walked into the studio the next morning and I said to Adam we're going to have to write a little song and I remember it was to Outcasts I'm Sorry Miss Jackson and it's called I'm Sorry Matt Hayden. <laughs> People probably can still find it. I think it's still on YouTube yeah. somewhere somebody's posted it and uh, yeah it was my apology to Matt Hayden and I still think to this day it's probably the thing that people talk to me about the most but yeah we were both absolute uh, cricket fanatics and that was one of the big things we bonded on. Have you spoken to him? Has he spoken to you about it? Matt Hayden, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's aware of it. <laughs> it's fair to say he's aware of it. I'm not sure he was as fond of it as we were, but he was aware. The beauty of this being a podcast, Will, is that retrospectively we can splice in that song right about now. <laughs> Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are more Never meant to say that you were crap. Apologize, saying you could never bat. Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are for real. Start safe trace with some giant hits. All much better than a Michael Kaskovitz. Matthew Hayden, he's got it going on. A sexy shaped head Forearms are so strong. It's no warning. He just can't score a run. Hope you're in the green baggy, Matty, forever. Forever? Scored the big runs in record time, hit a massive sixes and fours, pissing all over the brothers' war. It's like hearing some giant church bell ring as you dispatch Hubbard See, You know, call me a madman. I think we're bound to Brisbane born Brabant. You know, we think you're a better than Tendulka. Tendulka, Oka? Oka, 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 Oka. And we always have, Maddie. We think you're right. We've loved you. We've never said a bad word about you, man. Bring it on. Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are for real. Can you bat again in parking spot? We'll outscore him with a single shot. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You make all the fans euphoria. Could you please move to Victoria? Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You have led a team of winners. Pity Gilly can't play against the spinners. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You have led the Aussies from the front. Says you're not the. 
I remember that, that series being a real turning point for me. That was when cricket really got me 100%. Was there a moment like that for you where a particular match or a series or a game or a player or something that grabbed your attention as a watcher for the first time? Yeah, I, for me it was Alan Border. So, I, like, I think up until then I was an observer of cricket, but really those like that sort of that tough period for Australian cricket when Border, you know, got that team together and he was like absolutely, you know, classic Captain Grumpy, you know, Alan Border and you know, I remember him yeah, we were yelling at Craig McDermott and you know, it, like you know, and that that era, that sort of gritty, determined sort of era of cricket was certainly the one that really kind of turned me from being a you know, an observer of cricket into like being a hardcore fan of cricket and then you know that era of the superstar you know batsman you know Brian Lara and because uh, I was I remember growing up with like you know the great West Indian teams but as much as you know it was great to watch Viv Richards and you know Clive Lloyd and all those sort of guys bat it wasn't until sort of Lara and Tendulkar and that era of cricketers that I really sort of broadened out into having a real like following the game internationally mm. up until that point I probably followed the Australian team and whoever we were playing in Australia that summer but yep. uh, when it when that great era of you know international batsmen started that was when I started following sort of the international game and, mm. and, you know, trying to follow the careers of, you know, these players right around the world. Yeah, like Lara having that tour of Sri Lanka where he just made impossible amounts of runs or Andy Flower going to India. There were these these moments that were just that were just extraordinary and I suppose it was the burgeoning nature of the internet that made it much easier to follow and, and keep up with those, those games. Yeah, well, that's it as well, isn't it? You had the capacity to actually be able to you know, find out that... And you kind of forget that, don't you? That it's only really been 15 years mm. like, where we've had the capacity to have this up-to-date information in the way that we do, that everybody can just go onto the computer. And, you know, the idea that I watched... I watched a whole bunch of, like, the South African, you know, Sri Lanka series recently. Because you, you could. Because I could. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's amazing, that capacity. And yeah. then suddenly the world becomes smaller. But I think it's also because of the nature of, you know, the short form of the game, you know, the 2020 form of the game is that, you know, these cricketers have, you see them more often, even if, you know, their team isn't touring, you see them play in, in, in various guises. So you start to understand, you know, who these personalities are and what their strengths and weaknesses are and how they sort of, you learn more of their story and how they, they fit into the game, which only sort of broadens your, broadens and deepens your appreciation of it I think. Have you got a cricket pilgrimage in your will? Do you think that at some point you'll find yourself sitting a long Australian overseas tour watching every ball from the tour games through to the final day? So my great dream in life, my absolute ambition was always to watch test cricket in every country where they play mm. test match cricket and then uh, I got in a relationship with someone who now my ambition is to sneak out of the house when she's not looking and just watch some cricket. <laughs> so, so I'm not I'm not sure that that's ever going to happen. But my aim is that I might go to the Ashes in, in mid year. My I've got a, a break mid year that kind of coincides with the mm. the World Cup and then the Ashes. And uh, so I'm hoping that I might be able to go to the first Test this year, which would be that that that's kind of my my dream. That's in, in the that, short that's in Birmingham, so it could be a two-day job. You, you might you'd be able to get there for a weekend and be done with it. <laughs> and also the first test back for, uh, for Smith and Warner. It could be the perfect test to bear this, in terms of witnessing history and what will doubtless be a crazy response at Edgebaston, which is by far 
the loosest ground in England. It's one of those things that I would absolutely love to do. And uh, I've seen cricket played in New Zealand and I've obviously seen it here. I've never been to a game in England. Um, I was, yeah, I'd love to go to the Caribbean. I'd love to go and do that. I'd love to go to India. I haven't been to India, watch a game over there. Yeah, I mean, these are all things that I would love to be able to do. But... um, uh, you know, my my partner is not necessarily as fond of uh, the, the, the cricket as I am. <laughs> you should be able to make it work around Edinburgh this year as well. Edinburgh, because of the way the Ashes are a, a fraction later in the summer because of the World Cup, I think from memory the, 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 uh, the fringe starts about the same time as the first Test match. Yeah, that's about right, actually. I think the first Test might be just before the fringe and then, yeah, the fringe rolls on afterwards. So. Is that something you'll be going to? Well, I mean, maybe if I, like, just like, make up that excuse, that yep. that's what something <laughs> I'm going to where I'm really just there to watch some cricket. We did an episode with Earthboy with Tim Levinson. Talked to him a fair bit about touring, about the brutality of the road. That's something that you would have a lot of familiarity with as well, I'd imagine. Yes, that I mean, absolutely true. Although I guess mine's a much more solitary lifestyle than, you know, the cricket is. You know, there's no sort of, uh, you know, idea that you can't take the wives and girlfriends away on tour or that, you know, you have to go through some great big bonding exercise. But as you guys would know from covering the game, there's a lot of, you know, uh, hotels and, you know, a lot of, you know, time by yourself and uh, a lot of time away from home and it can be quite taxing, you know, on your general life. Um, I guess my hours are a little different, you know, like, I mean, obviously with the cricket, they tend to play during the day and then you have your nights and mm. whereas my, mine's kind of the opposite, you know, I work nights and, and have my days to myself, which is a little bit different, but, uh, and probably you get in a little less trouble in that way, I would imagine. Do you still love touring? I mean, I know touring's still still a pretty big part of your life, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. But you, you, what you tend to find is that other people in your life don't love it as much. That's what happens right. with touring. Like, I mean, touring's fun for... Yeah, being away is fun for the person who's away, mm. you know, in a general <laughs> sense. Although I will say this, there's a there's a point in your life, and I'm sure it's the same with, with cricketers as well, but essentially touring's really fun in the early years where the hotels you're staying in are clearly much better than the terrible place you actually live in and then there's a point where you become successful enough that the hotel you're staying is is nowhere near as good as the house you actually live in and then it gets harder to go away from your house you know so like i mean i'm sure warney loved being away the early years but then suddenly when he was staying at a hotel and they didn't have a giant pool with you know number 23 on the bottom of it then he wanted to be at home more and and mirrors on the ceiling and yeah i I want to read you a couple of tweets because You've mentioned Shane Warne, so this comes into it. Shane Warne selling his house. Prospective buyers should run it over once or twice with that CSI blue light uh, was one thing you posted. You mentioned Glenn Maxwell before, his trip to India in 2013. Yeah, oh, Glenn Maxwell, the first Australian in 84 years to open the batting and the bowling. I wonder why no one has ever tried that before. Oh, I see. (laughs) And the third in that trio is Shane Watson puts his hand up to resume bowling. Unfortunately, while putting his hand up, he's pulled his hamstring and is out for six weeks. These three, for me, are the holy trinity of Australian cricket comedy. They're the funniest in every way. But I wondered if that... Is anyone funnier? (laughs) Uh, Well, Warney, I I wrote two books in the early days and they were, I mean, they were just like, I had this weekly column in the newspaper and like... I, an American friend of mine read them recently, found them and, right. and read the books. And uh, his only question he had was, 
who's this Shane Warne and why does he get mentioned so often? Because the, the, the columns wouldn't be about Shane Warne. It just would, there would be no situation where I couldn't in some way insert Warney into the scenario. And uh, I did later find out uh, through another friend of mine that Warney was very aware of the fact that I was doing that and had asked in, in oh, pretty bad. clear terms if I could stop doing that all the time. Um uh, Warney definitely the funniest, but the greatest as well. That's a, that was the thing about Warney that was you know I mean yeah the the greatest uh, cricketer that I have ever had the pleasure to see play cricket. I mm. mean he was you know he was something magnificent. You know we when he came on to uh, bowl there was something that happened that I still to this day don't see with anybody else. Um, but also the great thing was that he was incredibly flawed. You know, hmm. he, he, he smoked and he, you know, he, you know, slept around and he, you know, consorted with bookies and he, you know, stayed up late and he did all these things. He tested our, you know, patience with him so many times, you know. Um, you know, he was fat and skinny and he had blonde hair and a mullet and, he, you know, he took baked beans to India. I mean, like, there was just there was just so much about Shane Warne yep. that just kept giving. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of counterbalanced by the fact that he was, you know, the, the greatest, you know, of all time. Whereas the other two that you mentioned, you know, Glenn Maxwell and, you know, and Watto, there's a certain sadness to the comedy around them in that, yes... There is a ridiculousness to, you know, both the way they played the game and their careers, you know, that they've always promised, you know, absolute greatness, but those moments of absolute greatness have been counterbalanced by moments of absolute... See, I think that the great... I guess if I'm thinking about it, is that the great thing about Warney was that most of his great stuff was on the field mm. and most of his terrible stuff was off the right. field. Whereas with Watto and with Glenn Maxwell, they're both on the field. Right. You know, like they can, their great heights and their great lows, the things that we consider them both, were both things they do mm. in a game of cricket. You mm. know, like... And with Warner, I think what you mentioned there, Will, the, the stuff off the field, it, it all happened before social media. I, I don't know how you interpret this, but when you were writing about him as a subject where he wasn't so exposed and you didn't get to absorb his every utterance through Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, that it made for a more interesting subject. Now, all the gaps have been filled in with him almost as though there's no mistake with warning anymore yeah i agree with that like the reality is a little bit sadder than the like what you imagined it was like when you hear about i mean i read his book and you know he describes the night you know of the play but the famous playboy underpants yeah incident hmm. and you're like it's such a legendary moment in sport but once you actually just see it <laughs> written down you know in black and white you're just like uh, it's really just a bit uh, underwhelming, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit gross now. Yeah, I also love the idea that you said that in some way, yeah, that yeah, he was, uh, I mean, he was pretty exposed. I mean, that's the one thing about Warren yeah. is he was, he, he, I guess what, what was uh, probably the thing that worked about him as well is he's unapologetic in who he is. Like the one thing he's always been in his life is 100%. You know, Shane Warren, for for good or for ill, he mm. kind of he is what you see on the label. There are so many people in life who you know publicly are one thing and then privately are something very different. Whereas, like 
you know, warny what you what you see is what you get. Yeah, you know, I guess this is a technology thing, isn't it? Because yes, he was so overexposed. We felt like we knew so much about Shane Warne. And for Jeff in my era, being Victorians, growing up in Melbourne, Shane Warne was the definitive cricketing hero for every one of my peers and friends and teammates and so on. And, and it'll always be that way. But it feels like in, in the decade since he retired, or more acutely perhaps the decade where social media has been such a, a massive part of him that I'm not sure whether that would necessarily have been the same now obviously his cricket would stand him apart of anyone that will forever but I would have forgiven Warney for anything when he was playing wasn't part of it because every time he got into a scandal he came back and played really well like I mean let's be honest imagine how many scandals he would have got in if social media was around mm. he might have taken 2,000 wickets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean sure he would have got in 150 scandals but he would have taken yeah. 2,000 wickets <laughs> So you look at a photo of him earlier on, you know, when he's 20 or so, and he's just this sort of chubby-faced little kid. He's quite sweet. He's insecure and he's quite innocent in a way. And you read Gideon Haig's book about interviewing him early on and, and he's just really keen to be liked and be likable. It seems like the version of him that we get is quite a jaded personality and it feels like public sentiment has shifted. Like there was so much love, just love, but then now it, there's a much more satirical edge. Well, I think that, like, probably he's... Not, well, I mean, everybody does it differently, but if you look at the post-media career of Shane Warne, the, the, sorry, the media career of Shane Warne post-cricket versus, say, Ricky Ponting, mm. right? Ricky Ponting has shown that you can just talk about cricket in an intelligent way and people will love you as a commentator. Yep. You don't actually have to be... You don't have to have huge, hard opinions about things. Mm. Warney's gone a bit more the, you know, the Ian Chappell, you know, sort of route, where it's mm. like, you know, Ponting has shown that you can just go on and speak about cricket in an intelligent way and people will respond to it. And I think Warney has a brain equally, you know, as intelligent as Ricky Ponting when it comes to thinking about the game, but he's yep. fallen a little bit into that that shock jock sort of thing of like, I have to have a controversial I'm an entertainer or, rather yeah, than a commentator. Yeah, exactly. And and for me, like the most entertaining thing of all is talking intelligently about the game. There are pl- plenty of people who can be clowns and there are plenty of people who can have huge hard opinions. But you're Shane Warne. Why don't you just like talk to us about cricket and tell us about your thinking? I mean, I can listen to Ricky Ponting like talk about cricket all day long and commentate every single game and you would learn something about the game of cricket listening to his commentary. And there are moments in Shane Warne's commentary where that is absolutely the case as well because he has one of the great cricket brains of all time. But unfortunately, he then gets, I think, caught in these yeah modes between sort of being overly entertaining or overly critical. Is it something you'd like to do one day? You know, formally be involved in reflecting on the game, whether that's, you know, uh, I know you've been heavily involved in football when it comes to podcasting and, and so on, but uh, finding your platform to talk about cricket on a more consistent basis? I, I like having something in my life now. And, I, you know, I, I imagine you guys, there's something really beautiful about being able to combine your passion with your work, but there is also something that it takes away from your passion a little Mm. bit the minute it becomes Mm. your job. And I've even found that with our football podcast is that, you know, you suddenly, you know, you feel like you have to watch the games and you have to have an opinion on things. And so you've gone from, you know, being just an enjoyer of something Mm. to being, you know, sort of contractually obliged to, you you know, take part in it. And the thing I love about cricket and, you know, is that I am nothing but a fan of it. 
Like, no one's coming to me for expert commentary on it. Uh, no one's expecting that I will tweet on every game that's going around. Like, I tend to tweet about cricket if I'm at home by myself one day and I get to watch the cricket, mm-hmm. I'll send some tweets about the cricket. But I don't feel like then the next day I have to get online and do a whole bunch of tweets about the cricket. Like, you know, I still get to enjoy you know, the cricket, and there are very few things in my life now that I haven't made into some sort of job. So I think cricket has <laughs> one of those rare, you know, spots in my life where, I mean, even to a certain extent where I was like, I've been talking to you guys today, and I was like, I probably probably should have been funnier. I was like, <laughs> I'm a comedian. I probably should have been a bit funnier. I got a bit serious about cricket. But the great thing is that I don't really have any responsibility to be that, you know, if I yep. was doing a podcast about cricket, I'd be like, yeah, I probably should be entertaining and, mm. and funny, but I'm just a fan of cricket. Mm. I just love it. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I'm just a fan, you know. I'm not part of the, the cricket industry. I don't have to be nice to anybody. I don't have to worry that if I say all those things about Sean Marsh that I'm going to be at a game and then suddenly I'm going to run into Sean Marsh at something and discover he's actually a really lovely guy and that's why everybody <laughs> loves him it. and now I'm going to feel bad about all those jokes that I've made about him. It's a pretty fair point. I mean, Jeff and I have joked about this before that uh, going into cricket as a profession and doing this, you know, 320 days a year where we're on the clock in one form or another, it has changed the way that I feel about cricket. I mean, have you ever had that same experience when it comes to stand-up comedy and, and generally your profession? that it does become harder to love it for what it is because there is a, an imperative that you make a quit out of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, people say, and it's one of the great you know, sayings, you know, find something you love to do and, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. But there is also the flip side to that, which is like find something that you love to do and make it your job and you'll never have a day off in the rest of your life because, <laughs> you know, you don't. You don't have that downtime anymore. In fact, you've mm. made the thing that was meant to be your downtime into your job. And even if you have the best job in the entire world, like then there are still days where you don't want to be at work. There are still aspects of the job that are, you know, draining and that takes away from the pure appreciation and joy of what it is that you you do. Like I'm sure that, you know, people who review, you know, music, um, you know, they think, oh, this is the greatest job in the world. I'll go to all of these concerts and I'll have a really great time. But when you're at the concert, you can't just be singing along to your favourite song and then going to a bar and, you know, getting a couple of beers and then wandering back for another song. No, you've got to be down the front with your notebook and evaluating, you know, what songs they're playing and whether the sound's good and these sort of things, which then takes you into a different place. It takes you from fan mm. into, you know, being at work. So, yeah, absolutely that's the case. I mean, even when I go and see comedy, and I'm still a fan of comedy, but when your brain is so used to, you know, analysing for your own work, you can't help but sit in the audience. And even if you're not thinking about it, your brain is going, oh, I see what they're doing here. And Mm -hmm. your brain's making those calculations and it's doing it regardless. So I think that making something your job can often... I think there's something very important and 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 to be admired about going, no, no, this is just my hobby. This is just for fun for me. You know, this has no value in my life. It's not what I do. It's just for me. It's just for my enjoyment. And and to me, probably more than anything else in my life, that is what cricket is, you know. And I feel no pressure to be a completist, you know. Like, I mean, if it were my job or if I was doing, I'd be like, oh, great. I'm going to have to watch every yeah, match in the BBL. 
right? Yep. You know, like the nine and a half months that the BBL went this year. I'm going to have to sit down at seven o'clock every night. I'm going to have to ruin my relationship because I have to watch, you know, the hurricane. It's going to be like the end like of the the clockwork orange. For the ninth time, you With know. Your eyes strapped open. <laughs> right, right. Like, whereas, like, you know, people this year were like, the BBL season was too long. I'm like, well, it wasn't for me because I catch like a game a week. Mm. So for me, it was about the same length as it was last season. I watched about the same amount of games. I dipped in and out whenever I felt like it. You know, I had times during the test this year where I had other stuff on on different days. So, you know, out of the four or five days of the test, I might sit down and watch three days or three and a half days because you can do that because it's it's your hobby, not your your job. Speaking of cricket going for a very long time, maybe my favourite line that you compiled in 2015, you said the reason that the World Cup is taking so long is that all of the New Zealand matches were directed by Peter Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I I forget a lot of what I've said, so it's impolite that I've laughed a couple of times at my own tweets. They're they're new jokes to you, they're coming back to you. But the World Cup does go for a bloody long time and it makes the big bash seem trivial. Are you going to get invested in it this year? Do you think are you going to sit down and watch a lot of it or will it just pass you by with your occasional dip in as per the BBL? I would imagine the timing will be really good for... So essentially, the more... The timing of... When I'm watching a lot of cricket is if it's at times when my partner will be doing something else or will be asleep. And the timing of the World Cup might work out very well for me. Uh, we're recording this today in, in my office out the back of the house. And um, yeah, I, th- I think there'll be a lot of me getting up yeah, getting up early, coming out here and uh, watching a game or two of, of cricket, um, you know, while she sleeps. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my version of having an affair. That's my, my version is sneaking out the back with the dogs and laying on the couch and watching like a, a B-group World Cup round match. But, yeah, no, I'll watch as much of that as possible because I love a World Cup because for me your World Cup is all your storylines are contained in one period of mm. time. So what I love about it is, is you get to know all the characters and there's something on the line that is important and then you see, you know, I mean, I, my, you know, I love to watch, I, I've watched a lot of the Women's uh, World Cup recently and I loved it because other than the Australians, I, I, I wasn't really across, mm. you know, uh, a lot of the other teams and their players, but you have this opportunity in a short period of time yeah. to get to know them and get to see them a few times in a row and you know kind of get an appreciation of their games and the way that they play and and uh, I, yeah I, I love a world cup for that reason and you may have to make that confession at some point you know i've, I've been seeing someone else it's muhammad nabi yeah. afghan, <laughs> afghan all-rounder <laughs> he just bowls tidy offspin in a way yeah. that you never can <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> Another post you wrote, the Australian dressing room always has 12 boxes, 11 for protecting genitals, one for suggestions. <laughs> if, if you had to give Australian cricket a suggestion or two at the moment in the place it finds itself, what would that be? Well, I mean, what I would like to see is I think that we actually have a problem with the way the season is, is scheduled. I will say that. Like, I think the big gap we have between domestic long-form cricket, when they take all that time off for the for the big bash I don't like that and it's weird now that we're back into you know the Sheffield Shield at a time when everybody's sort of thinking about you know football and Mm. and stuff like that so for me that is is really weird um yeah, Warner at three for the Ashes. That's my that's my big push. Um, that's the news line out of this interview. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anderson backs Warner at first drop. Yeah, um, I would like uh, 
to what would I like to see for Australian cricket? I think that different. I, I'm a very big believer in the different teams for for different versions of the game. Mm-hmm. Like you know, and that we should like you know the fact that Sean Marsh keeps making hundreds in you know one day cricket should be good and the lesson we should learn out of that is Sean Marsh is very good at one day cricket and Sean Marsh <laughs> should, could, should continue to play one day cricket the lesson we shouldn't learn out of that is we should give him another go at playing test match cricket for Australia I like the idea of, of, of us having specialist teams for specialist occasions and I'm going to take that a step further which is I believe that we should have specialist teams. So the idea that the famous Matty Hayden India tour, mm. the the kind of legend mm. of that is that he got the pitch put in and he practiced on the yeah the same pitch you know, all this sort of time. I believe that our solution to winning overseas is that we constantly have two teams in, in rotation. Right. Mm-hmm. So for example, you've got a team that's preparing to go and play. In, in, so you've got a team that can play in Australia because we've got a whole bunch of players who mm. have great Australian records but are terrible overseas. So the summer's in Australia. That's our Australian team, people with great home records. But in, meanwhile, we've got our Ashes team off in simulated English conditions mm-hmm. playing. Not We haven't just got the Duke balls. We've got English-style pitches. Yep. You know, we've got people in the crowd with English accents. Yelling at them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're being served, yep. you know, tea for <laughs> breakfast. Warm you know, beer. Exactly. And sausages and eggs. Like, I mean, really, you know, getting them used to the conditions that they're going to face. Just existing in a climate of political chaos and catastrophe, heading right. towards a massive economic collapse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to get them in the vibe of yep. it. And we have these teams these specialist teams ready to go around the world. So that would be me. I think more specialisation is what mm. I would like to see. It's going to be a long wait for the Zimbabwe team, though. The yeah. Zimbabwe specialists <laughs> will be... have <laughs> just been at the Harare Sports Club for 16 years <laughs> just waiting for the day. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably a pretty good place to taper off. Will Anderson, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thanks oh, for thanks joining for the Final me. Word. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. This is The Final Word's story time. Thank you to Will Anderson for chatting to us a couple of years ago. Uh, we hope that you got something out of that if you were hearing it for the first time or indeed if you were hearing it again. And uh, we also hope that you enjoyed our weekendly wander through the halls of cricketing history. We'll do it all again in a week's time. It was one of those interviews where I wish I could have been in the room with you. I mean, I've been listening to Will Anderson and watching his work for, I don't know, 20, maybe even 25 years. Has he been around that long? Possibly. Uh, certainly in, in the halcyon days of Triple J Breakfast when I was in high school and listening to Adam and Will each morning, it was a staple of my, my childhood, really. I say childhood, probably late teens, or mid to late teens, and uh, it's great that he's been so kind and generous to both of us over the years in supporting the final word, and such a joy that we were able to pick his brain for a while there a couple of years ago. I think that's really something you notice if you follow what he does online. There's a huge amount of just what some people call signal boosting of other other people involved in, in this kind of work, uh, up-and-coming comedians, 
podcasters, writers, broadcasters. He's he's always lifting other people up, and and so I think that's a a pretty admirable way to conduct yourself. His podcast is called Willosophy. One of his podcasts is called Willosophy. Uh, there's a conversation he had with a friend of the show, Tony Wilson, a couple of months ago, which I can highly recommend, uh, and also one with Julia Gillard, which was just about her post-political life. Uh, he posted that, again, maybe in the last six to eight weeks. It was a brilliant listen. So if you want to hear more from Will, jump on Willosophy. That's enough from us for story time this week. The show is produced by Bad Producer Productions. How many times can you say the word produce in one sentence? Many. Uh, check them out for their other podcasts. It's edited by David Collins. Thanks to him. And thanks to everybody who contributes on Patreon and uh, helps keep the show going and is the entire reason that we have this weekend episode to, to look at all the numbers in greater length. We'll be back with the regular weekday show in the middle of next week to look at the issues and stories going around the cricket world and we'll be back for story time the following weekend. That's how it happens. We finally found a relatively happy balance and we'll keep doing it for as long as we can. Story time. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.